You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thankful, Father, for your kindness to us in Christ, for your giving us your word, for us, for your giving to us, First Peter. And we pray that you would now do a great work in us, your people, for your sake, for your namesake, for our own comfort and peace, and for the good of the world surrounding us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, hey, everyone. Uh, it is good to see a few more of you now here in this building with us tonight. Uh, a week and a half ago, we were really excited and looking forward to this Sunday while understanding that uh, many of you would still choose to, to stay home and join us on Zoom and that we'd only be transitioning back uh, here this evening with only half of the alphabet. Uh, we were certainly looking forward to this evening being a bit of a celebration. While we wouldn't be able to hug each other or see each other's smiles, I've told a few of you, you just have to trust me that I'm, I'm really smiling really big when I am seeing you. Uh, it was going to be a really great time of being together. And while it still is, two things then happened uh, in the past 10 days. Midweek last week, Governor Lujan Grisham uh, dis distributed the state reopening plan, which inc included the directives given specifically to houses of worship, uh, including the command to discontinue congregation singing and chanting. And that sure put a lid on uh, what many of us were looking forward to most by being together, just the singing and hearing each other sing. And uh, then we justifiably heard uh, feedback from many of you throughout the past 10 days or so not only about the science of why in the world uh, that's a reasonable directive if we're already wearing masks, uh, but wait, what? Like, shouldn't we just obey God and even consider what we considered here two weeks ago in Colossians 3, 3.16, that we should uh, obey uh, God's word to sing to one another and just ignore those kinds of governmental directives? Shouldn't we obey God and not man? Moreover, does the state have the authority at all to tell us what to do and how we should or shouldn't worship? Should we just ignore the directives of the government and obey God in assembling however we'd like, like Hebrews 10 tells us, or to sing however we'd like, like Colossians 3 tells us, or come to the table however we'd like, from like 1 Corinthians 11. Not, of course, how we'd like, but how God tells us to in his word. After all, like Daniel and his friends were willing to go to what they thought were their coming deaths for what God had commanded them to do and how he had commanded them to worship. And Peter and John in Acts 5, facing imprisonment, say that they must obey God and not man. 
So we decided that all of this uh, warranted a slower and more deliberate think-through, uh, looking into biblical categories, of looking into theological and civic and scientific and constitutional and even neighborly categories of how to think through these things. But then a second thing was happening concurrently, simultaneously to uh, the conversations that we elders were having and thinking through this Sunday that we were having midweek this week, as you likely all know, and as Clint has already prayed for, George Floyd, a 46-year-old African-American man, was being arrested for alleged forgery, and then he died under the eight-and-a-half-minute force of a police officer's knee on the back of his neck, face down on the pavement, the last two-and-a-half minutes of that knee on his neck after he became unresponsive and possibly was already even dead. Then fresh off the heels of the killings of Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia in February and Breonna Taylor in Kentucky in March, neighborhoods in Minneapolis and now all over the country are on fire and are ongoing in protest. And so what we were hoping to be a bit of a celebration, a bit of a return to normalcy today with all of you, is now deeply settled amongst not only a virus, but amidst larger and wider and elevated social unrest. This Sunday is extremely unusual within the life of our church. Nearly every single Sunday, we will just keep working our way through the next passage of whatever book we are preaching through. So today is strange. We're going to take a one-week break and delay uh, our wrapping up the last few verses from the letter of the Colossians, and we'll finish that next week. But we thought it wise that we needed to spend some time here. As Christians, how in the world should we think through categories of submission to governing authorities? And then, does a threshold ever get crossed where we begin to consider or even engage in civil disobedience? This is a heavy topic, and I'm afraid I probably have bitten way more off than I can possibly chew here tonight. But I'm going to read 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17 one more time that you already heard Jess read, and then we're going to think through it in four categories. The nature of authority, the nature of the church, the rights of authority, and the rights of the church. So if you have a Bible, you'd like to open that with me to 1 Peter 2. Let me read verses 13 through 17 again. Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So just like last week, when we were thinking through uh, the end of Colossians 3 and the first verse of Colossians 4, in which Paul was placing Christian subjection to authority as unto the Lord, Peter does the same thing here. He writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. 
From start to finish, the biblical authors are clear that there is no human ruler, there is no human institution or authority that does not first derive their authority from anything other than the sovereign will of God. Daniel 2, it is God who changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He establishes kings. Romans 13, Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. From the authority of an emperor or a president, to the authority of a police officer, to the authority of a preschool teacher, God deputizes and then gives his proxy authority to varying levels of human authority. This is exactly what Peter is saying here in verse 14. He says, subject yourself to authority because authority, especially governmental authorities, primary role is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Which is also Paul's point in Romans 13, that human government carries the sword of justice to exact justice on behalf of God. And so, if that's the case, if Christians believe and understand this to be true, we ought to submit ourselves and subject ourselves to these authorities as unto the Lord. Now, there are exceptions, and we'll get to those. Human governments can not wield the sword well. They can not bring justice. They can even bring more evil with the authority that they have been given. But submitting to human authority, remember last week, submission, we want to impart to our children what submission and obedience looks like right away, all the way, with a happy heart. That kind of submission ought to be the default MO, the default way of living of Christians, of obedience as unto the Lord. I think we can be so quick to look for exceptions of when we should not obey or submit to authority that the rare exceptions can then pollute our wider MO of submission. Like, because there are some abusive parents out there, that doesn't mean that we still don't expect our children to obey us all the time. There are exceptions. And so I think our children can understand that there might be exceptions and then think, well, you know, I, I am just overly cynical or overly suspicious of your authority. That should not be the case. Because there are tyrannical governments presently and in the past, that doesn't mean that any time a government asks of its citizens of something, that that is necessarily tyranny or necessarily treading on our rights. We'll think through our American constitutional system of an elected republic and how that's different from the Roman imperial context in which Peter and Paul are both writing from. But keep in mind that the emperor that Peter and Paul are telling us, are commanding their readers to honor, to be subject to, to submit to, are, the emperor that they are considering is very much more than likely the emperor Nero, a wicked man who used Christians to put them on pikes and then ignite them on fire to use them as like candlelit candle lighting for his dinner parties. This is an evil emperor that Peter and Paul are telling their readers to submit themselves to. That guy, he does not have any authority that God has not first given to him 
So submit to him as, under, as unto the Lord. And that grates against our like, deepest sense of American conviction. But perhaps the most difficult parts of the Bible, perhaps the most difficult things that we read and think, ah, that, that's, that is difficult to do. Perhaps those are exactly the kinds of things that we must turn our antenna onto and be willing to think, maybe this is what God needs to transform in me the most. Maybe as an American, I am so suspicious of any authority that that's actually causing my uh, lack of obedience to the Lord in other areas. Perhaps these are the things that God is most wanting to shape and transform in our own hearts and minds. Now, if that's the nature of authority, that it is deputized authority and that it is derivative authority from God, what is the nature of the church? The nature of the church. I, I would really just love to get into like an hours-long history lesson of how a Christian understanding of the nature of the church developed and transformed, but just a couple of minutes. Would you bear with me for a few minutes? Uh, of course, all of this is predicated on Scripture and even on leaning of the early church fathers in the first several centuries of the Christian church, but major developments began happening in the early 1600s and then the mid-1600s in England, especially amongst English Baptists, who were arguing that local churches were political societies in and of themselves. Local churches were like local embassies of the wider kingdom of God, with individual and specific people, with actual names whom God has redeemed and saved and then made them citizens of a new kingdom. These people whom Jesus has lived and died for, who were first and foremost now citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and then, only then, secondarily citizens of an earthly kingdom. And generally, more often than not, drawing on what we just thought about of the derivative nature of authority, being a citizen of the heavenly kingdom as ratified by your local church assembly, embassy and assembly will make you an exceptional citizen of your earthly kingdom, whatever earthly kingdom that you happen to find yourself in. Remember what Peter said, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so early English Baptists were constantly trying to say that by, by aligning themselves with a local church that was removed from the state church of England, they were still, even still, loyal subjects of the crown. They were not anarchists. But they were also arguing that the crown had no authority from God to coerce their religious practice in ways that would violate their own individual or corporate religious conscience. And so early Baptists, guys like John Smith, and then later a guy named Roger Williams who found himself exiled out of Massachusetts to the dodgy and disreputable colony of Rhode Island. He started writing about religious liberty and a need for a distinction of separation between the state and from the church. This so-called separation of church and state, which by the way, that phrase doesn't appear in the Constitution, is then very much less about making sure that Christians or people of other religious faiths cannot make laws based on their own religious motivations or interpretations of morality. After all, 
every single law is a law of morality. It's just a question of whose morality. I realize I just walked into a minefield there, but the separation is less about religious people influencing state policy and is more about state policy being removed from influencing religious people, specifically religious practice. Though we definitely wouldn't identify more than a handful of the American founding fathers as Orthodox Christians, they were pretty sick and tired of European heads of state and European state churches meddling in the body politic of the religious conscience of local churches and individual Christians. And not just Christians. Early Baptists and their philosophical descendants were arguing for the free exercise of the religious conscience of all people, the so-called Mohammedans, as they would often refer to Muslims and people of all faiths. And so the nature of the church, while submissive to and subject to human institutional, institutional authority, is in and of itself a political society. The church is a political society that is caring inwardly and outwardly for the good of its people and for the good of the world. The church is the temple of God. The church is the household of God. The church is a very city on a hill, not the United States of America. And so the crown or the governing authorities has no right to tell churches what to do and how to worship. And so how do we square these two points together? What is the threshold for thinking through whether or not we remain subject to governing authorities? or if we should obey higher laws, if we should obey the highest authority. Well, now third, as we've thought through the nature of authority and the nature of the church, let's now think through the rights of authority. While human authority is derivative, it is derived or received from God, that does not mean that it is limitless or it is inerrant that human authority cannot ever make mistakes or be wrong. Governments all throughout the Bible are often described of as beastly throughout Revelation. Think about Pharaoh and his government in Egypt through the Exodus. It is the government that actually brings about the crucifixion and death of our Lord Jesus. Remember Psalm 2. And even this phrasing in which we sang just a few minutes ago, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But in Paul's and Peter's context, what could be done? Really nothing. Like you could resist authority, but the only outcome of that would be your swift and certain death. This is why Paul, at the end of Colossians 3 last week, encourages servants to not work for earthly reward. After all, these servants are likely to be mistreated their their entire life, all of their days. Instead, then, work toward a heavenly reward, knowing this, that God is not blind, that God is not uncaring, and your mistreating master, the wrongdoer, Paul calls him in Colossians, will be paid back for his wrong. There will be justice. Rest assured. Vengeance is the Lord's. 
Now, while Roman citizens were afforded more rights than non-citizens, there was absolutely no such thing as a common understanding of universal human rights, certain inalienable rights endowed by God to be secured and preserved by the government. So if you're living in the first century, like, go ahead and protest police brutality or an overreaching government and do that, and you'll see more brutality. You'll see more overreaching. But God will see, and God will keep account, even though you are very unlikely to see justice done in this age. But we do not live in that age. We do not live in an empire with a singular, autocratic, and lifetime emperor. We live in a constitutional republic in which certain rights are afforded to us as citizens, and it is the government's role, the government exists to secure and preserve these rights. Rights like the freedom of speech, of free assembly, of free religious practice, and of the press. These are all rights guaranteed under the First Amendment. So surely, when the governor says that people cannot assemble in large groups, or that we can't sing or we can't share in common communion elements, she is surely infringing on these First Amendment rights. Well, thus far, I am convinced, no, she is not. While the founders constructed a system of government that was intentionally slow and cumbersome, they were ever wary of the consolidation of power, they were ever skeptical and critical of governmental overreach, The constitutional law absolutely allows for the governor or for the president or for mayors to give the kind of directives that she has been giving, to temporarily infringe upon these rights, but that pass what is called strict scrutiny. So the governor can ban gatherings, can ban singing, if when a directive like that passes three criteria— that a ban or a directive like that can be shown that the government's actions further a compelling interest. And in this case, the government absolutely has a compelling interest, the public health of our society. Second, that the action is narrowly tailored, meaning it doesn't go beyond this directive. This directive doesn't go beyond the first compelling interest, in this case, that of public health. Or third, that the action is in its least restrictive means, meaning it isn't overly or unreasonably burdensome upon its citizens. So the government is under strict scrutiny to operate within the boundaries of these limitations. And the courts then should, should and do check these various levels of executive branches when there is overreach, as a federal court did with the Louisville mayor uh, last month in unfairly singling out a reasonable and safe Easter drive-up service in this, for churches in the city of Louisville. The governor said, no, you can't do that. And the courts rightly said uh, that this rule was uh, failing the third criterion of strict scrutiny, the least restrictive means. And then the court said, no, this this mayor has overreached, and so the people were allowed to then gather in these kinds of ways. Now, while some of us might be more or less persuaded that some of these directives have been more heavy-handed than we would have liked, we are also, or at least your elders, are persuaded that Governor Lujan Grisham is still operating well within her constitutional prerogatives. So if these are the rights of authority, now let's consider the rights of the church. 
What should we do? And how should we consider these kinds of constitutional prerogatives and balance those with with, uh, the commands from the Lord that we have been given? We do not believe that churches have been unfairly singled out. And in fact, if we consider churches to be more categorically similar to movie theaters and casinos in terms of activity, in terms of the amount of people indoors, in, 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 in regards to the, the, the amount of time spent inside, the duration spent inside, the lack of fresh circulation happening within these buildings, then we are thankful for the good faith efforts of consideration and particular exemption that our governor has given to us as churches, as an essential service. Even with the June 1st changes that are happening tomorrow within our state, movie theaters and casinos will still be closed. We've been meeting or been allowed to, be, to meet for three Sundays now. We're thankful for this. There may come a day, though, when our government does overreach. The most effective long-term check against this kind of overreach as Americans is just voting the people that we believe to have overreached out of office. And then it is the job of each generation to protect and then walk back the kind of overreach that they have observed or experienced. Unfortunately, this isn't really happening in American society. More and more power is being consolidated within executive branches, but that's not the executive branch's fault. It's our fault for not holding them accountable. But more immediately, in countering overreach, and some of you may be convinced that our governor may or may not have already overreached, like another church in our town already has, as a citizen or as an organization in the United States of America, you can then actually sue the government for acting unconstitutionally. This is remarkable. Something that Peter or Paul could have never imagined or dreamed about, of suing the government to hold them accountable. And then when that happens, Lord willing, the cogs of our checks and balance system will act accordingly and appropriately. And then if it doesn't, then there are certainly biblical categories of religious civil disobedience, like the whole book of Daniel, or as we mentioned in Acts 4 and 5. But your elders think the bar should be set very high for when we begin to consider such disobedience. It seems abundantly reasonable for the government to restrict assembly, for the government to restrict certain practices, when it is through that very assembly and through those very practices that the virus spreads. COVID-19, as Mark Dever calls it, is the anti-church virus. The anti-assembly virus. The very word church means to assemble, the assembly And at this point, the government does not appear to be anti-assembly. It is the virus's fault. So let's not aim our anger and frustration at the inappropriate villain here. Maybe there does come a time where we move toward considering disobedience or even legal action. Maybe. But I personally don't think that we are getting anywhere close to that line. We can certainly debate whether or not the American Revolution was a biblically justifiable action. That's a really fun debate. But these hypothetical decisions of civil disobedience should be serious decisions, should be sober and cost-counting, not merely reactive and demanding. Because while we are commanded to gather, to sing, 
to come to the table together, we are also equally commanded to submit to and honor our governing authorities. So wise and careful reflection, both through biblical and constitutional frameworks, will be needed to balance these commands very carefully. Moreover, choosing to submit to the governor or to the CDC in these ways is not just an action of begrudging submission. We do not like not singing. We don't like it. But as we mentioned in the weekly email on Thursday, we're now not entirely sure that we wouldn't have made some of these decisions now on our own. In a better understanding uh, of the science and of masking and singing, we're considering these temporary decisions as potentially a better way to love our neighbor and to bring renown, the, renown, the growing renown and growing reputation of Christ amongst our neighbor than just doing what we want to do however we'd like to do it. We ought to never live out of fear, but I can't think of something much worse than becoming like the Baptist Church in Frankfurt, Germany, where last week over a hundred new cases sprang from just one Sunday gathering, where that pastor is now mournful for not masking and for continuing to sing. Now, of course, like Clint mentioned earlier, we will continue to receive directives from our governing authorities, and we will continue to consider uh, these decisions prayerfully and carefully. And again, while we ought to be skeptical of consolidation of power, though, our default MO still ought to be right away, all the way, and with a happy heart, willing to patiently give the benefit of the doubt and cultivating compassion and empathy even for our governing authorities that aren't you glad that you are not in that position of power to be making these decisions where every single possible decision that you could make is an awful one and you are just trying to choose the least awful one. I am so glad to just be part of a group of other men who are making decisions for this, just this small flock of wonderful folks and not making policy and economic decisions for an entire state or country. So perhaps greater empathy and compassion ought to be cultivated within our own hearts for those who are. Now, all of this is related, but it is emotionally and theologically and even constitutionally different from the events that have set off what is happening in Minnesota and around the country. Well, the experience for African Americans today is certainly better than it was in the days of slavery or in the Jim Crow South, to now assume that racism is dead, both individually or institutionally or systemically, and to assume that there are now no zero lingering uh, consequences or realities to be felt and experienced was to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the felt and realized experiences of our African-American brothers and sisters, many of them indeed brothers and sisters through the blood of Christ who are begging and pleading with the white church to hear, to empathize with, and to understand. For centuries, the Constitution and the checks and balance system of our government failed black Americans. The Constitution and the checks and balance system of our government were often outright opposed 
to black Americans. And to this day, institutional policies and the regular lack of legal accountability regarding wrongful arrests, mass incarcerations, wrongful deaths, violence, and even murder are almost too much for many to bear. One can understand the frustration and the anger which would set off such riots. Are there opportunists and underhanded instigators in these riots? Are there many bad actors within many of these riots? Of course. But events like these do not get set off in pristine vacuums. Now, I feel like just spending a couple of minutes on this may come as just a great disservice. It ignores unbelievably wide swaths of history and policy in society, it undervalues the experience of black Americans, and it minimizes the overwhelming majority of virtuous and kind law enforcement officers who take seriously their role to serve and to protect. But what would you do if you were a Christian in Minneapolis? What would you do if you were a Christian in Nashville or in Dallas or in Albuquerque? First Peter 2, 15 and 16, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Christians ought to be the loudest defenders of justice. They ought to be the most peaceable lovers of our neighbor. We Christians ought to be the most reasonable advocate for a better way forward. And as we get back into uh, the Psalms for a few weeks after we finish the book of Colossians, many of these Psalms, Psalms of Lament, we will have even much more to consider there together. But now, coming back to our services here together almost seems trite, almost seems inconsiderate to now consider the experience of temporarily not being able to sing. But what is the most reasonable and best way forward for us as a congregation? We want to be very clear about what we are doing here on Sundays. Now in the temporary transition time, that what we are doing here is really almost less than church. For one thing, we're not all here. Like we mentioned earlier, church means the assembly, to assemble together. We are not all assembled. There are many of you still in your living rooms. And that's going to be the case for a good while. We aren't singing together. We aren't uh, coming together and greeting each other as we ought. We aren't coming to the table together. Like, what we're doing here on Sundays for whoever knows how long ain't it. It ain't church. It is somehow less than church. And so for that reason, we want to reiterate that just because there is an in-person gathering happening here downtown at 4 p.m. on Sundays, we don't want you to feel like we're keeping track of who's actually coming or not. So we want you to feel the absolute freedom to keep joining us on Zoom. And there are multiple reasons why you might continue to do that. That you actually are wanting to keep avoiding contact with people because you yourself or others that you are in regular contact with might be particularly vulnerable to the virus. You might choose to stay at home because you'd rather sing loudly and with gusto. 
You might rather invite a person or two over to your living room to be able to greet together and to experience and then digest the entire service together afterward more openly and freely. You might have small kids, and there is obviously no Christchurch kids happening now for a good while. All of those are perfectly legitimate reasons for you to choose to stay home. In many texts or email or phone conversations over the past week, I have told many of you, look, you don't need to tell us why you're not coming. Like, you don't need to, like, get a doctor's note or something and get an excused absence for why you're not here on Sundays. What we do want this thing downtown to be, as still less than church, is an option for those who do want to be here. And weighing the balance scales of all of these considerations, for those of you who might come to the conclusion that you actually want to be here. Maybe it's good to see and to be with folks that you don't normally see and be with. Maybe it's easier for you to stay focused throughout the sermon or throughout the whole service if you're here in person. Maybe, though while not singing words, being in person, raising your hands, seeing others is more meaningful and valuable while we uh, sit under the leadership of Matt and, and his leading us in song. For still others of you, it might not be. Maybe some of you with really small children are thinking, well, we, we've always had an ultimate uh, goal and value of having our family together here in the corporate worship service, and now this has just jump-started our timeline. So prepare your kids for this. If it takes practice in the middle of the week to help your kids sit still, well then practice. With a few of our kids, we had to put a chair out and then practice sitting still for 30 or 45 minutes on like a Thursday so that on Sunday when it came and one squirmy kid is saying, I gotta go, or just whatever, I can't sit still. No, you can. You, you did on Thursday. I saw you. This will also require greater patience on behalf of everyone else in this room knowing that these parents really want to be here on Sundays, but don't have a children's ministry for their squirmy kids. Kids are kids. And as the family of God, we can bear with one another in love and with patience and with compassion, certainly not with glaring looks over your shoulder. For still others of you, though, you may know your kids, you may know yourself, and just come to the conclusion of, uh-uh. Like I, my kids, my family, and the church will benefit more if we stay home. And that's fine too. Feel that freedom. None of us knows how long this is going to last. This less than church thing is not a return to normalcy. And we do not know when normalcy will be back. There's just like so much more to say. There is so much more to say about the nature of the church, while none of us are experts or medical doctors, there's so much more to say and consider about epidemiology and about the American Revolution and the president's tweets and about our love for each other and about our love for our neighbor and about injustice and the racial history of America. And I hope you can continue having these conversations with each other. In the context of your GC, along with the links in last week's email, I would be happy to recommend further reading, either on blog length or book length, even have a phone call or a Zoom meeting with you. 
Next week, we'll be back to our regularly planned close of Colossians 4, so join us for that, either in person here on Sunday, if your last name is N through Z, or with us on Zoom. And either are great. But for now, let me just close us here with this. 2 Peter 2, 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that we live in the country that we live in, that we do and have been afforded certain inalienable rights. We are thankful for the freedom to gather and to worship, to encourage one another, to preach, to sit under preaching, to come to the table, to do all of these things. But we are also mindful of the authorities that you have set above us. We are also mindful of our neighbor and the reputation of Christ, which we seek to preserve and to enhance. God, help us to be more happily submissive to our authorities that you have given to us as unto you. Help us to be more happily submissive to you, our authority and our good king, who, King Jesus, you did not use your authority to wield injustice, to even punish our injustice. But King Jesus, you became like us and you took our injustice upon yourself. You took our sin and our lack of submissive obedience upon yourself so that we might be considered not only citizens of your kingdom, but to be considered and adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. Our Father, we pray that we would not take these privileges of living in your kingdom and these privileges of living in this American governmental system and in this land for granted. Help us to protect and to preserve and to seek to secure more firmly these rights and privileges but help us to be humble. Help us to consider the needs of others to be more significant than our own. Help us to fear you, love you, and be subject to the authorities that you've given. We pray that we would do all of these things out of love for Jesus, our great King. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.